0: Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Thursday, the 16th of August, 2012, and our special guest is Paolo Blickstein. Paolo, welcome. So glad to have you here.
1: Thank you, Steve. Uh, thanks for inviting me. And it, it's really, really glad to be here to share some thoughts with your incredible audience. Well, they're very excited to have you here. Uh,
0: you and I actually met, I don't know if you're going to remember, at Maker Faire, but I was, I think, dashing out at the moment you were giving your talk. So this is my way of following up and making sure I get to hear more from you. So thanks for being here. The Future of Education is Web 2.0. I do, I
1: do you. remember that. And you, you asked great questions at Maker Faire, which is great. Oh, I'm glad.
0: Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project, thanks to Mighty Bell and Blackboard Collaborate for support. Yeah, that was really fun at Maker Faire, thanks to to all those who were there and participated, and especially to Betsy Corcoran from EdSearch. Coming up uh, next week is our Learning 2.0 virtual worldwide conference. If you don't know about this, please go to learning20.com and check it out. An unbelievable lineup of keynote speakers. And we're making up for any gender inequality there's ever been in EdTech keynote speakers. Because it's about uh, three to one, uh, female to male. But really fantastic. Plus, you can still submit to present. Uh, the first day is going to be an all-day unconference. This is a complete experiment. Social EdCon online. Um, <laughs> Check it out at learning Uh it, it should be really fun. It, and, you know, it's a hard time of year, everybody's busy, um, but for what you're able to attend, please feel free to come. And then four days after that, Tuesday through Friday, of just amazing uh, presenters and keynoters. Uh, this is all part of Connected Educator Month, connectededucatormonth.org. Um, Things going on every day, just amazing things, and we're uh, so appreciative of that program. Uh, Future of Libraries Conference, also worldwide free, uh, two days coming up in October. Um, Really good speakers for that as well. And then, of course, the Global Education Conference, November 12th to 16th, the just incredible global gathering. Um, Hundreds of presentations, just a blast. Hope you can join us for one of those. If you have missed, uh, or, well, coming up on Future of Education, today is Paolo. Um, <laughs> I see every typo, of course, the moment I pull the slide up. right? Uh, social EdCon on the 20th, David Warlick, Mark Prinsky, Michelle Pacansky-Brock, Lucy Gray, Rob Freed, Heidi Hayes, Jacobs, Lee Rainey, Esther Waziski, Gina Bianchini, Yong Zhao, Angela Myers, Audrey Waters, Cheryl Nussbaum Beach, Sugata Mitra, all keynoting uh, next week at Learning 2.0, plus all of the other interviews coming up. Hopefully something there that's of interest to you. Uh, we really appreciate it when you do take the time and come, and hopefully these are valuable for you. If you've missed any shows, they're all recorded in full Blackboard Collaborate form and in MP3. Uh, Stephen Downs, Howard Gardner, Alfie Cohen, and Gary Steger talked about reforming education reform last week. Oh, that's so worth listening to if you missed it. Connie Yowell, uh, before then, uh, Larry Johnson, Doug Rushkoff, Chris Lehman, Deborah Meyer. These were all keynoters from the break, the uh, kickoff session for for Connected Educator Month. Again, everything's up at futureofeducation.com uh, with good quick links there. So this is where you get to tell us where you're participating from. To the left of the map, you should see a star icon. It's the second one down. You click on that twice, and then you can click on the map. And as I mentioned, today's a unique day. I'm at my mom's nursing home, streaming through my cell phone's 3G connection. And uh, I just love technology. Really delighted to have you here. Wherever you're from, please feel free to put a shout out in the chat. I will put that I'm in hot Sacramento, California, some New Zealanders, Australia. Wherever you are participating from, we're sure glad to have you here. We appreciate you taking the time. if you're listening to the recording, thanks for doing so. OK, I'm going to move us forward here. Feel free to keep keep those uh, locations coming in the chat. There is a Mighty Bell space for this session. And I'll put the link in the chat for you. Mighty Bell is the new program from Gina Bianchini. She was the creator of Ning, and I'm consulting for her on this new project called Mighty Bell. I just love Mighty Bell. Again, uh, that has to be understood as coming from somebody who's getting hired to do work for her. But I do really like the concept. It's uh, It's like Pinterest with conversation so curation plus conversation, and if you go to that link, you can join up. I put some of Paolo's uh, web links there and a video from a TEDx talk that he gave, and feel free to gather other resources there from tonight's interview. Paolo, so you and I met at Maker Faire. That was a, a great event, and I was really sort of delighted to get acquainted with you. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the path that has brought you here to Stanford? And then we'll, we'll kind of look at um, your the, the passions that drive you, and then in particular the Fab Lab program, and um, we'll talk about the low-income populations as well. So how, do, how did you get to where you are now?
1: Well, um, I think, first of all, I had a very... Um, you know, important experience when I was a, a child. I, I, my parents uh, enrolled in a school, you know, in an elementary and middle school, that was run by the daughter of a very famous Brazilian uh, educator called Paulo Freire. So this guy in the 60s, he started saying things that people would, you know, take as uh, This guy's totally crazy. But he said, you know, education should not be standardized. It should be culturally uh, adapt- adaptive. It should be meaningful for students. Students should be empowered in the classroom. You know, should, they should be oppressed. They should learn about things they care about, and all kinds of things like that. And uh, and then, you know, of course, in the 60s, this was like you know crazy but not, and and now it's like what everybody is talking about but he started this in in the 60s and his daughter uh, actually opened a school in Sao Paulo in Brazil and and then my parents enrolled me in this school and I was there for 8 years until I, wa- I went to high school and and that was a very uh, uh, important experience for me because we didn't have exams we didn't have uh, grades we didn't have textbooks uh, and then so i learn about learning in a very special way in a very different way so for me you know up to that point uh, learning was a, a pleasure learning was something you do because it's enjoyable and even when it's hard and it's a lot of work uh it's never an imposition from you know some authority that you really don't don't, don't and you don't know what's going on so I think that was that is really at the root of the kinds of things I believe in and the kinds of things I do today. And then, you know, let's fast forward to when I finished undergrad. I, I did engineering as an undergrad, and then when I was uh, finishing, I started thinking, you know, maybe uh, there are people in the world thinking about how education can be different, how it can be more like the experience I had in the Freire School, and then uh, you know, I was kind of randomly looking through my, my books and my bookcase, and I found this book that my uncle had given me when I turned 15, and the, the book, you know, it is called Mindstorms, and a book written by Seymour Papert that, you know, and I started rereading it, and I said, oh, my God, this is exactly the kinds of things I, I, I like, I believe in. And I started looking for where is this guy in the world, Seymour Papert, and I found out that he was teaching at MIT and had a research group at MIT Media Lab. So, you know, in a a crazily crazily optimistic uh, uh, move, I sent uh, an application and I, I got accepted to work in at, at the Media Lab, I spent three years there, and it was like wonderful years of really an eye-opening experience. We worked in Senegal, in, in Brazil, in Mexico, in Costa Rica, in all kinds of environments and, and, and countries. And then after that, I realized that I, you know, I knew where I want, you know, the end game. I knew, I think, I, I knew what I wanted, but I needed more tools. I needed more rigorous uh, research methods. I needed to. Convince more people that you know this is an interesting approach, and and I thought that a good approach would be to to be an insider, so to go to a school of education and do a PhD and actually you know acquire all the tools that it, researchers in education have, so that I can uh, make a better point of why you know those kinds of more open-ended, student-centered uh, environments are better. So not just you know people should believe my word or, or they should believe my anecdotes, but they should believe my research. And if they if they say no, this is insane, they should then do a you know a, a large scale experiment like you know some of the things I'm doing. And uh, so I think it it changes the debate. I think we have a lot of people that you know are advocates of of traditional education just on the basis that. We've been doing this for twenty years or hundreds of years and, and that's you know, that's the best way of doing it, or on the basis that look we have all this body of research, this kind of hardcore quantitative research saying that, you know, this is the best way to teach math. So I think we have to at some point start talking that kind of language as well. Uh to convince those people that that's not the best way. So anyways, I did a PhD in education at Northwestern, at Northwestern, and then I came to Stanford um, three years ago. And then that's how it kind of connects to the, the Fab Lab. Of course, at MIT, I was you know in the lab every day, every night. And I said, this is a, an amazing place, and this should be in every school. And then when I came to Stanford, you know, I had the... Uh, you know, in the the whole job negotiation process, I said, you know, I I, I will come here if you build me a fab lab, and they said, well, this is crazy. You know, in schools of education, we just read and write books; we don't do anything with our hands. You know, this is not the place for a lab like this. And I said, well, okay, so I'll go somewhere else. You know, I really. And it was really a revolutionary thing because now. So this is the first school to have a full the first school of education to to have a full fabrication lab, and you know people come they they enter the the school building the the Stanford School of Education they come to the lab, and they say is this like misplaced in the university I mean why why do you have a lab in a school of education, and then five minutes later they when we explain what happens that kids they come to the lab they build projects they do all kinds of things they say. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Why doesn't every school has a lab so that we can train teachers to you know do this in the schools and all of that? But so that's a quick overview, but I, I'll leave I, I'll, I'll let you ask all the questions you know how more I can talk more detail about about the lab and how we're taking this to other schools and all of that.
0: That's a terrific intro. And I, I did not know about the uh, Frere School, which is fascinating. So you have this combination of Frere and Papert. And sort of uniquely position you to um, to be able to discuss um, those pedagogies um, at a place as prominent as Stanford. Uh, How do your colleagues respond? I mean, if you had to kind of give an overview of the Stanford School of Education, um, um, when they agreed to build the Fab Lab. Do you feel like there's a general understanding of its value, or are you still trying to convince other faculty members of the importance of this?
1: Well, I, I think, you know, I have to say that I think my colleagues were incredibly uh, supportive, and uh, and they really took a risk because, you know, it's not just building the lab, but you know, when you put resources into something, uh, you know, people always question, you know, why not do something else with that money, right? So I think you know, the, the leadership at the school, uh, you know, Deborah Steipek was the dean at the time. She was very, I think, brave to to, to do that. I think, you know, in the beginning, people were uh, a little, you know, what is this thing? Is this like uh, this engineering guy doing kind of some kind of gadgets? You know, what does this have to do with learning? You know, what's the... And then it was interesting because uh, I, I invited some of the uh, the kids of the faculty to come to the lab. And then the kids would come and, and and their parents would come, you know, the uh, professors at, at Stanford. And then through the eyes of their kids, they would, you know, immediately understand what it was all about. So, you know, the kids were suddenly like laser cutting and 3D printing, like these 12-year-olds, you know, 3D printing, laser cutting. And then... You know, the parents who were, you know, previously skeptical would say, oh, you know, I mean, you could tell that they they really understood because they, they saw it through their kids and then they see what, you know, it can do to other kids, to other other students in other schools. So I think that's, that was an interesting way that it happened, but also, you know, especially I think the main way is that. We are, you know, publishing and, and doing rigorous research in those kinds of environments. And I think that's a language that everyone in academia understands. So I think that's um, that's another way that it's happening. I mean, when they go there, it's not just, they don't see just kids making stuff and, and playing with machines, but they see, you know, we have a ton of panoramic cameras capturing data all the time. We have microphone arrays capturing their speech all the time. We do all kinds of, you know, things of computer vision to detect how people collaborate. We have eye trackers. We have, you know, skin conductivity. I mean, it's we do a lot of. Uh, so they see that it's not just a place for, you know, playing, but it's also a place for research. But but I think that that story was very interesting. Just uh, see how it it changed. And now it's funny that every visitor that comes to the Stanford School of Education, they take them at, you know, they take them to the lab first because you know, it's like there's no lab like this in, in other places. So they say, look, we are we are so cutting edge. You know, come see the kinds of things we do. Um, so it was an interesting kind of change of. Um I, I think you must have turned your
0: mic off. So um, no, I, yeah, I,
1: I put, I, I, I stopped talking.
0: OK. Oh, so I put up a, the website where I think this is, is this the correct website for the lab? Yes. So there have been some questions in the chat about what uh, actually takes place in a lab. You've described some of it. Um, uh, How do you describe uh, what takes place in in a lab? Is it structured, unstructured, and and, um, who's actually coming and using the lab?
1: Yeah. So uh, the the project that we started uh, is called Fab Lab at School, which is a, a special Branch of the fabrication lab that that happens in schools and for kids and for learning, right? So we call it Fab Lab at school. So, uh, so the, the interesting story that uh, happened and uh, uh, in, in the very beginning is that we 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 brought kids to the lab and then they started, uh, you know, they came the first day and they started exploring the machine. So we had a the first activity was to build a keychain, right? So they built a keychain and then uh, uh, wrote their name on this laser-cut keychain and they took them home and, you know, they were very excited because, you know, these things, they look very professional, these acrylic keychains. And then uh, next day they came back and then we said, okay, now let's do robotics. And, and the kids said, no, no, we want to do some more keychains for our parents because they really like the keychains. Third day, you know, they came back and said, OK, now we're going to do something else. And they said, no, no, now we're going to do keychain for for the, the principal of the school and our friends and all of that. And, and then, you know, so we spent a whole week doing keychains. And at some point, we realized that there was something wrong. And, and what was wrong is that, you know, in a way, the kids, they cracked uh, digital fabrication. They realized, oh, this is a way to get these really nice products with very low effort. And and that's of course exactly the wrong way to you know to go about it. But but the kids are of course very smart, so they realize that. So we realized, you know, our first big lesson was that this idea that you just let kids lose in a lab and magic will happen, uh, you know, it works very well for. The Silicon Valley kids who have engineers at Google that you know help them do all kinds of stuff, or a lot of the kind of Maker Fair stars uh, kids. But for the great majority of kids, uh, you know, they need a lot of support and help to to do their projects. And and I think that's one of my worries is that we we get carried away a little bit with. Uh, within within the media, which is always the outlier kids that you know were thrown in a lab and then built uh, a flying you know helicopter or something, and and I think that's a very important thing. I mean, we 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 need to know that the average kid you know is not the one with a Google and en- you know engineer as parents or whatever, and and they need help. Otherwise, what happens in in a lot of you know, what happened in in my lab in the beginning and what I see in many places is that kids, they just do the same trivial, very simple project over and over and over again. And then uh, they never go deep, they never really, you know, uh, get challenged and all of that. And so I think this is one of the key things is that you have to challenge them uh, to learn, you know, more complex things, to build more complex things. And that's a skill that We don't teach our teachers in any teacher training program. Uh, We teach them how to manage classrooms, how to deliver the content and all of that. But when I have teachers in this kind of project-based environment and their their job description is help kids create complex and interesting projects, uh, they they don't know how, how to do it because it's actually not easy. So I think that's one point, you know, uh, that I wanted to make, but just for you to have an idea of what happens in those fabrication labs, uh, for the most part, is that uh, we create uh, some generative teams. For example, let's improve the city. Let's improve your neighborhood. Let's improve water quality or something like that. And then the kids design projects and design Solutions for for those, for those uh, and they don't design problems. Sorry, they design solutions for the problems and using the digital fabrication machines. Uh, and then now, one thing that we're gonna start doing is now that we have a network of labs in four countries, we want them to also work together and, and collaborate on those projects. So it's normally you know projects like this. Uh, we started doing a lot of projects that are within the curriculum. So you know a project within the history. Uh, class, within the math class, and all of that. So those are more uh, connected to the content and not so open-ended. And, uh, and those have been very ex- successful as well. So Over.
0: how much of... Okay, thank you. So how much of this
1: uh, do you
0: think is kind of a resurgence of the shop class value? Uh, or
1: are the two related? Yeah, so I think, you know, first of all, you know, one uh, one thing that I think is very interesting, very important to say is that, you know, I see a lot of people talking now about, you know, hands-on learning and and, and digital fabrication or the maker's culture, but we have to remember that this maps all back to Seymour Papert, to that intellectual tradition of constructivism, constructionism, and all of that. And you know, in the in the 60s and 70s, you know, Seymour was doing like robotics with kids, was doing programming with kids, and and sometimes people tend to forget that you know this is not necessarily a new idea conceptually. It, it, of course, we're always in improving it, and and the, the issue there is that you know there are lots of interesting lessons and theoretical uh, advances that were made in the 80s, in the 70s, at you know at different places. When we had a lot less resources, but you know a lot of the same ideas that people sometimes ignore today—they just forget that you know we've been doing programming with kids for 30 years and robotics for 30 years and all of that. So you know a lot of this this thing we have to we have to uh, remember that there, there was a history to to all of that, um, and so that's that's one thing. But uh, sorry, but you, I think I, f- I forgot one half of your question. So.
0: No, it's fine. There's a book called
1: Shop Classes. Soulcraft. Oh, Craft class. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. Okay. okay, the shop class. So, I think the issue with the shop class is that it used to be, you know, if you're not doing well in math, you know, they would say, you know, why don't you do shop class? I mean, not for all all students, but it there is this, you know, uh, terrible dichotomy between, you know, hand labor. And kind of physical things are bad, and and are for the low wage, you know, low, low income people or low wages uh, jobs of low wages. And then the intellectual work, the math, you know, the 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 higher level skills are for the the high wage jobs and all of that. And and we we have a lot of this baggage. So what happened in many places with the shop class is that it became the place for the students who couldn't do any math, any of the real, you know, quote, real content. And, and that's a terrible thing. So what I think is exciting about the fabrication lab, the digital fabrication lab, and people ask, you know, why do you need a laser cutter? Why not just use scissors, right? So one of the exciting and important things about this is that the status so when you're working in a digital fabrication lab it is it is mathematically not less complex than actual theoretical math because you have a, to do a lot of uh you know complicated uh calculations to design and build your things you have to do 3 d design and all of that but you know it's not just it, it, it's not just that it's interesting uh work mathematically, but people's perception of a fabrication lab Is not the same as a shop class. So when we have kids go to the fabrication lab, it's not the low-achieving students that get sent there. Uh, It's actually sometimes quite the opposite. So I think what's exciting about this is that this is a place where kids can use their hands. They can build things. They can make things. They can use a lot of math and all of that, but it's not seen by society as a place for you know the losers the low achieving kids the the the, the dumb kids. i mean i'm co- you know put quotes on all of those words, of course, those are like how people say not uh, and so I think that's exciting because it's an opportunity to get kids who would not normally connect with traditional content in the traditional ways we teach them and offer them a socially valued way to engage with learning to engage with content, and then later you know i'm They will get in touch with the math and all of that, but it's not a place that is stigmatized with, you know, this is like a place where you go where you can't. Uh, So I think that's a a fundamental difference with the shop class um, that is very important. So
0: there's a lot of talk about teaching creativity and teaching innovation. And I wonder if sometimes those are surrogates for giving choice or agency. How does a fab lab uh, create opportunities for innovation and creativity? And are those valuable? Um, We talk about them as being valuable, but are they truly needed right now?
1: Uh, You mean the innovation and creativity skills and all of that? Correct. Yeah, so I think, you know, probably you had... People uh, talking in, in this program many times about how the job market is changing, how society is changing, and all of that. So I don't want to kind of dwell on, on on that, but just to say that uh, the kinds of skills and, um, and, and and abilities that we care about they changed greatly uh, in the last um, in the last 30 years, right? So there, there is work from you know economists. You can you can look at. For example levy and Murnam's uh, two thousand five paper that where they look at changes in the kinds of tasks that people do in the job market and so they you know did research about uh, what kinds of tasks are going down what kind of tasks are going up and basically everything that's is routine so either cognitive uh, cognitively or or manual uh job tasks that are routine, that can be replaced by a computer, by software. They are, of course, in less demand. And But there are lots of things that are going up. So, you know, complex diagnosis of things, complex communication, expert thinking, and, and all of that. And so this is not just like, you know, again, uh, my opinion about things. There is research showing that the profile of the jobs and the kinds of tasks that people do is, is actually changing radically. Uh, not only that, but the kinds of ways you add value to to a company, to a process, and all of that. You know, it, it used to be that those things could take 20, 30 years, but now, you know, you have one iPhone every year, you have one iPad every year, you have one. You know, the, the product development cycle is a lot faster. Uh, the third thing is that the way that innovation happens in, in the companies is also different because. Uh, it used to be that, you know, when you have 10 years to create a product, you know, every engineer is doing a little piece of it, and so it's a much more like a assembly line of new products. But today, in a, in a company, they have digital fabrication labs where they are creating, you know, two, three prototypes every day, every week of new products. So, uh, if you go to, you know, work in this kind of, places uh, you're not going to do one thing for 2 years you're going to create prototypes you're going to brainstorm a lot more you're going to have a lot of opportunities to be creative to think outside of the box and all of that so the way engineers work is you know fundamentally different as well so you know i think there is a lot of uh, controversy about you know is that actually true are we uh, you know is there a way to teach creativity and i think some people are asking this into in the in, in in the chat here, but I think um, fundamentally, you know, if you just take the you know popular view and which is also based on research that you need ten thousand hours to become an expert. So imagine that you finish college at 22 or 20, 21 and then you want to be an expert innovator, an expert uh, creator of new processes, new products. So 10 years means that you have to do it for another 10 years or 10,000 hours to become an expert. And, but imagine if you can start that at 13 or 12. And so by the time you get out of college, you already had, you know, 5,000 hours of being an innovator, being a a, a creative thinker, being a creative uh, uh, generator of new ideas and all of that. So I think we can start that a lot earlier than, you know, wait for people to finish college and then say, oh, by the way, the way you learn all these things, uh, you know, by just repetition of old stuff and and re creating what's already out there, it's not really the the way you're going to work. So now we're going to retrain you to be creative, to be... So it probably doesn't make much sense to start it that late. You know, not only that, but of course you're going to learn much better. You're going to be a lot happier in school if you have lots of opportunities to create, to innovate. And if you talk to teachers, um, you know, I've had experience with teachers. Teachers that you know, of course, sometimes in the beginning they are afraid and all of that, but after they went through these workshops that we do with kids in the in the fabrication lab, you know they say, "Oh my God, like you know this is exactly why I came to the teaching profession. this is exactly why I wanted to be a teacher because i wanted to I wanted to feel kids engaged in this way, I wanted to feel them passionate about learning, passionate about about what they were doing." And I hate this role of, you know, being the kind of enforcer of rules and and just reciting knowledge and all of that. So I think sometimes, you know, people say about, okay, that's great. Let's teach all this, you know, innovation and creativity. But, you know, teachers, maybe they, a lot of teachers, they they thrive in that environment. But, of course, we have to train them to do that. But that's exactly why they came for, you know, why they became a teacher in the the first place, to see that kind of impact in their kids' lives.
0: You tell a story in your TEDx talk about the elephants which are doing artwork but are actually controlled by somebody pulling on their ears. It's almost it's kind of an unforgettable story. How much of the the choice right now is between control and student choice? Is that a fair way to frame the the difference?
1: Yeah, I think you know there is a lot of uh, you know m- many of you might have heard of this uh, all these new techniques to to monitor what students are doing, uh, especially like in online environments where you can you know record every mouse click and 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 some of these environments where you have like these tests that you can do and you know you have to pe- have get ten of them right and all that. So there is a lot of movement of using new technologies to better control students, to monitor what they do. Uh, but there's no consideration of, you know, do we, is what they are doing the right thing to do? So it's like this obsession with control and monitoring and, and recording every mouse click. But, you know, if, you, if you're doing recording mouse clicks and what kids are actually doing is a stupid Task that's not really going anywhere. You know, it doesn't matter if you have all the detail about what you're doing. So, there is a danger with all the technologies that we have right now. You know, from, from logging what people do and, and all kinds of things. To so there is an end game of that, which is you know we're going to have tons and tons terabytes of data about students doing multiple choice tests, students uh, answering very, very simple questions. Uh, Everything that the technology is good enough to to assess. And I think that's a terrible scenario, because computers are not very good at looking at open-ended answers. They're not very good at looking at a robot and telling if the robot is a good project or not. But they're great at grading multiple choice tests. And there is a big danger of just education becoming more and more of that just because that's what the technology can do. And I see a lot of that in many of these online environments that people say, oh, yeah, we can just do these silly tests. And and I think that's a terrible thing. On the other hand, when we start going to the more open-ended, open choice kind of things, uh, we need to develop a lot of new technologies to do Assessment not only like automated assessment uh, which we we are doing sometimes, but also giving better technologies for teachers to monitor what's going on in a in a classroom so when you have a project based classroom, you need to know you know where where students are if uh, students are doing well if, which project where you should direct your help uh, and and all of that and we are developing a lot of those tools, so for example. We have a project that we do in the intro to programming course, where we are, you uh, know, we have an automated algorithm that is able, you know, is d- that is able to detect what we call sync states. So when kids are stuck in a in a particular state in their program in their code, uh, the system detects that. So then, you know, maybe the teacher can go there and and try to help them, or maybe they can get more help and all of that. So. I think those are the interesting things. I mean, there is an interesting combination of free choice and, and, and this monitoring technologies, which is let's use the technology not to make it dumber and, and you know, uh, more oppressive and more kind of 1984-like, but let's give kids more freedom and develop, it, and develop this really high-end, high-end technologies that can help us see when they need help. Uh, human help, and then we go there and help them. And, and I think that makes it a lot more scalable and, and all of that. But I think there is definitely, you know, a, a choice there that we have to make, either by over-controlling or, or develop, developing technologies to enable freedom.
0: John Seely Brown talks about uh, freedom within structure, and my guess is that that's probably closer to definition you would give for
1: what takes place in a fab lab. Uh, choice within structure, yeah. So, uh, you know, just as I said in the beginning, uh, we when we try the completely kind of anything goes open-ended, you know, here's the lab, do whatever you want kind of approach, it works for 20% of the kids who are very, you know, self-directed and all of that. But for the other ones, they need, you know, scaffolding. They need uh, some ideas to begin with. They need some starter projects, so we started to develop materials for that so starter activities that we we are you know making are all open source for our you know uh, partners and schools that 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 want this material so starter activities some teacher guides to to help teachers kind of facilitate those things and and those activities they are increasingly uh, i mean th- they start with something very small that they can do in a couple of hours and then they grow in complexity and in, in choice so that even kids who are not sure about what they, they can do, they can you know find themselves in, in this structure and thrive in those environments. Because you know, something that we don't realize is that a lot of times you take a child that has been educated for you know eight, ten years in one kind of environment and you just let them lose in a completely different place. It can be threatening. It, it, it can be difficult. So we need to scaffold that transition a little bit as well. So give some structure, but you know, increasingly, uh, let go of you know a lot of the constraints and all of that, so that they can thrive in the more open-ended um, environment. So there are a set of questions on the screen that were asked while we were waiting
0: for you to arrive in the room, um, and then a couple have come in through the chat that I. have put down as well. Let's start with one and then I'll let you choose some others that you'd like to address in the next, in the final 10 minutes. So Dan wants to know, is there any long-term tracking to see how participation in the lab affects learning habits later in their schooling?
1: Uh, yes. So in one of the school, uh, in, in some of the schools that we're working, we have, uh, we're collecting this longitudinal data. So these large-scale surveys and interviews and, and data collection things, where we every three months we collect you know a set of data about these kids, and because this is a six to twelve grade school in particular, we uh, we started this last year, so we'll have a lot of this this data to track uh, what they learn, their career choice, uh, their STEM learning in particular, and all of that. So. That's you know, one of my main concerns of research, is to show that this uh, approach works, and it can be scalable, and it has a, an impact on how kids learn. So we are, you know, of course we started, we just have one year of world of data, but we'll, we are still collecting it, and soon we'll have a very interesting uh, longitudinal portrait of what happens with those kids.
0: Are there any questions on the board that you would like to quickly answer? didn't really talk about low income yet. Do you want to take that second one there about uh, how you connect with inner city kids?
1: Yeah, so just very quickly, uh, I think again you know one of my main concerns with a lot of like the the kind of maker culture and and maker fair and the fab labs and all of those things is that there is a scenario where we would benefit disproportionately the kids who have uh, who are already you know privileged and because as i said you you put them in a in a space and if they don't have any background on you know what to do if they don't have the right support they might just uh, not thrive in that space as opposed to the kids who are already come from a privileged background their parents are engineers you know they don't they're not afraid of anything and so there is a scenario where we'll just make the gap increase by offering those kinds of opportunities so i think it's very important to be careful about the you know being uh, the the equality and diversity aspect. So one of the things we so I'll try to summarize it very quickly is so in one of the, the surveys, this data collection things we did, we asked kids, uh, you know, do you do you like inventing things? Do you like creating inventing things? And the this so we we were comparing two schools, a low low income school and a high income school kids from the high-income school were twice as likely to say, I like inventing things than the kids in the low-income school. Then we asked another question, when you see something broken, uh, do you think about fixing it? And then it's exactly the opposite. The kids from the low-income school, they are twice as likely to say, yes, I think about fixing it than the kids from the high-income school. So, you know, of course, I'm simplifying a lot of, there are many more questions in this uh, thing, but the, the general picture is that um, the kids from the high-income schools they are already, uh, you know, biased to, towards being interested in a lot of those things. And the kids from the low-income schools sometimes they feel that what they do is not really socially valued, is not important. What they do is not uh, creating; they're just fixing stuff. And I saw that in, in Brazil, Brazil a lot when we were in public schools and you know, we we asked, "Do you are you good with technology?" and they said no no we we, we don't we, we don't have any technology we're poor right then i went to you know observe what they had in their houses and in their like playground and, and all of that and they had these like washing machines that they repurposed as a, a you know a, a tv antenna or or these kitchen appliances that became toys and all of that and it was you know technically very complicated to do those kinds of repurposing and adaptations. But they didn't see that as technology. They said saw that as you know something that poor kids have to do because they don't have any toys. As opposed to the you know the rich kids who actually sometimes did nice Lego robots but were far less sophisticated than the repurposed toys, the repurposed electronics that the kids did. So uh, what we did in this in this workshop in 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 Brazil and you know I, there is a paper about that you can people can search it's called Travels in Troy with Freire. Uh it's on my website. Was the that we said okay now you know we have all these repurposed toys, uh, we're going to teach you how to add robotics to it. So we we taught those the, the kids from the slums in Sao Paulo to. Add motors and microcontrollers and sensors to their uh, repurposed toys and devices and all of that, and then all of a sudden they realize, oh, what we are doing is technology, and it's you know sophisticated, and it's actually much better than the Lego stuff that the kids you know across the highway are doing. And that was so empowering and, and, and amazing for those kids, because they suddenly realized that, yeah, they have a lot of technological expertise. Technology is not about expensive stuff you buy in a store. It's about, uh, you know, a skill you have and, and knowledge you have. So, you know, when, when I talk about low-income kids, I always depart from this perspective, and which is a Frarian perspective, which is, let's find out... How people do technology in their local communities, in their local cultures, and there's always a way that they they use technology. Sometimes it's not the way we look at technology. Like it's not that they have iPads and they are, uh, you know, doing downloading apps, but they are always doing sophisticated technological stuff, repurposing, uh, you know, re, uh, re- reinventing, reengineering different things. And so the first thing that I do when I go work with a new community is to find out about that, about how they do technology, and then I add on to that, you know, some new technologies like robotics, microcontrollers, and, and, and things like that, and digital fabrication. I never say, look, you're, you're poor kids, you know nothing, and you have all this, like, uh, you know, and come to my fancy lab, because that doesn't work, and that of course, does exactly the opposite. So I always depart from their perspective and their use of technology, and then we add on, you know, new things, uh, new things that are socially valued, and that will will highlight uh, what they do already. So I think that's you know an an important uh, aspect of this uh, this issue that you're asking.
0: So there are two questions that are somewhat related. One is the cost of a fab lab. And the other is, how does this spread? So is this expensive to do? And how are you hoping that this will um, spread to other areas in other ways?
1: Yeah, so uh one... So before I forget, uh, we, we are doing a conference on digital fabrication for education in October at Stanford. It's a conference called Fab Learn 2012. Uh, 2012. Fab Learn 2012. I can It's on the web, on my website, but you know, later we can send the link to everyone. And we have a call for a proposal, so if you want to present a paper or a demo or an experience, you can send us a proposal, or you can just come and attend the conference later. Anyways, a cost of a fab lab—it it varies a little bit, but I would say you know a very very basic setup would cost around ten thousand uh, dollars, I would say, and it goes all the way up to fifty or sixty. Uh, I wouldn't, you know, people say, "Oh God, this is uh, this is too expensive to be relevant," you know, uh, it's fifty thousand dollars. But the thing is, you know, in five years. This will be twenty thousand dollars, and and then ten. It's gonna cost less, you know. In two years, it's gonna cost less than a laptop cart, for sure. So the cost issue will be less and less relevant. Now, now uh, when I first started this, we bought the, the laser cutter was twenty thousand dollars. Now, you know, just like two months ago, we bought a Chinese laser cutter for three thousand dollars. You know, it's not as perfect as the w- other one, but it works fine and. You know the difference between having a a room that's empty and a room that has a three thousand dollar laser cutter is incredible. So you know if you have ten thousand, you can start something simple and then uh, go from there. So I think the cost should not scare anyone because uh, the cost of the equipment because it's not really it's going to go down. What really is more uh, you know costly and more resource intensive is training the teachers and having good people in the school that can lead this kind of initiative. So every time we work with a school we we say like we need a real like a leader in the school that will, you know, carry this forward. And 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 so I think the, the greatest uh cost in in a way is the profession development, more than the equipment. And and it's kind of unfortunate that people get kind of caught on the equipment side. But the professional development is is more. I mean, not just cost in terms of money, it, but just in terms of time. But it pays off a lot because you know when you have capable people that can do. T- I mean, the results are just so obvious that you know um, it kind of it, it generates a very interesting movement in the school. And and I think you know some people asked about uh, you know how I'm helping teachers integrate the technology and all of that. So. We're designing many different things. One of them is called bifocal modeling. So you can also see on my website. So this is a way, uh, an approach that we designed to integrate science class and digital fabrication. You know, I don't have time, of course, I think we're almost done, but to explain in detail. But one of the fundamental points is not to make these fabrication labs an after-school program. And I see that so many times, and I think it's exactly the wrong way to do it. If you only do uh, um, after-school programs, you only get the same self-selected kind of kids that you always get. And so it's important to integrate them into a regular classroom. We've we've done this in um, history, in in the history class, in science, in math, in art, and it really works uh, well. And I think, you know, the idea is... If you if you like sports in a school, you go to the gym, right? If you like reading, you go to the library. If you like music, you go to the music room. But if you like invention and creation, you, you have nowhere to go. There's no community. There's no culture around that. So and people say, why do you need a, a lab? I mean, that's the same reason you need a gym or you need a music room is because it becomes a culture-building place in the school. And it's very hard to get rid of this room, you know, when because when you know I've done so many robotics workshops in schools, and the sad thing is that once it's over, kids don't have a a place, a physical space to to carry on the work, and it just has no place in the school. When you have a room where it's a dedicated room for that, uh, a lot of magical things happen because it becomes you know part of the school culture.
0: So I've put your web page up, and I put a link in the chat. Uh, It does have contact information for you. And uh, uh, we do, as a courtesy to our guests, we try and finish on time. And so I'm clapping for you. In the participant window, I hover over the smiley face. I go down to applause. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your coming on the show and getting to know you a little bit better. I think there are a lot of us who... Um, are going to find that your voice is really helpful in this regard. And I'm somewhat stunned by the frera pappert connection um, and, and hope that we're going to have uh, additional opportunities. If you'd like to put the link to the conference in the chat, uh, please feel free to do so at this time, and because um, I think there are, there are many who'd be interested in that. So thanks to Paolo uh, for coming on tonight. Um, terrific. Really, really a fun show. Don't miss next week's uh, Learning 2.0 conference with all kinds of great stuff going on. That's at learning20.com. Paulo, thanks a lot.
1: Thanks a lot, Steve. Uh, I put the links. And also, uh, if if people want this, the paper about Freire and, and, and PAPR, it's called Travels in Troy with Freire. You can Google it or just look on my website. And, you know, email me if you have any questions. It was a great opportunity, and and I hope to um, uh, keep the conversation going. And thanks a lot for the great questions. Uh, We couldn't get to all of them, but, you know, eventually we'll email and and be able to talk more. Thanks a lot, Steve, and everyone.
0: Thanks, Paolo. Thanks, everybody. Terrific show. Really appreciate it. Uh, Again, the schedule of upcoming events is on your screen. And the Learning 2.0 conference is at learning20.com. Take care, everybody. Good night or good day to those of you in Australia and New Zealand.